probably, I think the most compelling thing you can have when you go to market in any industry, which is that you simply are providing immense value to your users. The combination of people who are frustrated with their current solutions. So it's not like we had to go manufacture like demand. People are not super happy with what they have today. And then you come in and you offer a solution that they're looking for, and you're doing it at 90% lower pricing than everyone else. Like that creates a gravitational pull towards your platform. I was doing some reading before my interview with Jason Wink from articles around the time that he launched his third startup called Altruist. The experts didn't give him much of a chance since he would be going up against the big four REA custodians who dominated the market. But as the great Reed Hoffman once said, it's actually pretty easy to be a contrarian. It's hard to be a contrarian and be right. Well, Jason proved that his idea for Altruist as a low-cost yet fully-featured technology and custody platform for RIAs was right. His firm has become the fastest-growing custodian and is causing the now big three custodians to look over their shoulders. I spoke to Jason about the secrets behind Altruist's phenomenal growth, the opportunities created by the Schwab TDA merger, and a whole lot more on this episode of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. back and enjoy episode 91 of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz, the founder and CEO of Ezra Group Consulting. If you work for an enterprise wealth management firm, an asset manager, an RIA aggregator, or one of the many technology vendors in our space, then Ezra Group can help you make better technology and business decisions. Please check us out at EzraGroupLLC.com. This podcast features interviews, news, and analysis on the trends and best practices all about wealth management technology. And a couple of quick housekeeping notes before I start. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss a future episode. And please go to our website, EzraGroupLLC.com, and register for our upcoming webinar called The Journey Towards Data-Driven Wealth Management. If you are involved at all in the data infrastructure or data asset strategy or anything about technology at your firm, which requires data, you will want to attend this webinar. You can find all the details on our website, EzraGroupLLC.com. And now on to the interview. I am happy to introduce our guest for this episode of the Wealth Tech Today podcast is Jason Wink, founder and CEO of Altruist. Jason, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I got to admit, I'm a, a big fan and I've listened to, I've, I've learned you've had 90, now 90 plus episodes. I've probably listened to at least half of them in the last six months. So it's a real privilege to be on. Thank you. All right. We only, we love having fans of the show on the show. That's the best. Well, I mean, consider, consider, consider it a double win then. Right. <laughs> We're both happy to be here. Exactly. I'm happy to have you on. Uh, you know, we talk offline a lot and some of the things mm -hmm. we talk about, I always feel like it's be great to share some of it. Uh, with the industry because it's because you're a wealth of information and love what you guys are doing, how you're changing the RIA landscape, uh, landscape, landscape over at Altruist. So if you can just give us the 30 second uh, elevator pitch for Altruist. Happy to. Yeah. So, so started Altruist because we, um, 
I've been in the RA space for 15 plus years and I've been asking every other vendor out there, and why wouldn't you do this? Why would you? And I think, you know, you, if you find that you have an, an itch and no one else is scratching it, you know, you finally scratch it yourself. But basically it was a, a real challenge. I felt like to deliver an incredible user experience to clients and to do it at scale so you could serve everybody, you know, regardless of the level of wealth people had. Uh, and that's what led me to start Altruist. And this is not your first company. So can you give us a little quick overview of your history in the industry. So you've started a couple companies, so you've really got a lot of experience. Yeah, man, I've, I've been doing this for again, a long time. I started my first RA in 2004. And I think at that time, there was only a few thousand RIA firms um, in the country. Uh, and it's wild, you know, to see it now. I've, I read recently that, it, that we passed 40,000 registered entities, which is, which is a lot of growth, obviously. Um, and, you know, I, I got into the business as an engineer first. So, um, you know, built productivity software before I started actually an RIA firm. And then the RIA business, I just was sort of an extension of the, um, the inability for software by itself to solve the problems I was trying to solve, right? So I wanted to get, um, it's funny, our mission at Altruist is uh, to make financial advice better, make it more affordable and accessible to everybody. It's that same ethos I've had for 15 years, you know, and, and it's just sort of, at first it was, oh, I'll build software. And then it was, well, I'll build an RIA firm. And then it was, well, let me build another RIA firm that's got a little bit more tech integrated. And now all these things are coming full circle. But um, yeah, my last company was um, nesting sort of our own software platform on top of the existing custodial infrastructure that exists, you know, for RIAs. So primarily Schwab, TD, and Fidelity. And um, we had a really good run, but I always tell people that when you, once you have a, once you have a, a business that's growing really fast, um, things that today a typical advisor will say, look, this is a, this is a pain in my ass, um, but I can deal with it, you know? So something like as simple as like opening an account or doing an ACAT, like the processes aren't great today, but people will accept them because they only are doing, you know, maybe 20 new accounts a year. When you start opening a hundred accounts a day, and you do that for a sustained period, you know, multiple months on end. And, and, and if there's any type of not in good order rate, you know, 10% or something like that, before you know it, you're sitting there and you're going, wow, I've got, you know, four or 500 accounts in a follow-up status, you know, because of some type of, you know, paperwork snafu or something, right? These were the things that, that really um, at my last company, again, it was a very successful sort of technology enabled um, TAMP. Uh, we... I realized that until someone actually tackled the infrastructure layer of the space and really made it a lot easier to operate at scale, would we achieve like this, you know, what is now our mission, right? And, um, and so, yeah, I've been doing this for a long time. I mean, I hate to age myself like that, but I mean, it's been a, um, a very good journey. And I think unless I'd gone through um, a lot of years of kind of pounding my head against the wall, trying to make things work that just weren't designed very well, um, I wouldn't have been in a position to properly tackle a, a product as ambitious as Altruist. So three things. First of one, number one, you're not that old. <laughs> right. Number two, the, um, so my company is, I run a consulting firm and, and we work with a lot of, uh, a lot of tech companies and broker dealers and some of the tech companies come to us and say, Hey, we have a new product idea. What do you think? Would you think these types of firms would be interested in Sometimes they're talking to RIA firms. And we check with some RIAs and different representative firms, different sizes and shapes and ways they work. And it's exactly what you said. They're willing to accept poor efficiency and bad user experience if it's a low volume process. So 
some firms only open 10 accounts a month. They're still successful firms. They still open a lot of new accounts. So coming with some great new new account technology, they're not going to change their custodian, change their, their onboarding tools just for that. So it really has to be something that they do more often or uh, you know, a higher volume practice. Yeah, totally agree. And uh, yeah, I think the um, one of the observations we've made, and this is something that I tell people is a core innovation at Altruist, is is this idea of vertical integration. Because anything standing alone by itself, um, unless you're doing it at, again, a really high volume is probably not a big enough pain point to take action. But if if you're wasting, you know, 10 hours a month on account opening and 20 hours a month on rebalancing and, you know, another 10 hours a month. And imagine if those things all just worked, right? And it was like, it, it was, it wasn't even push button easy. They literally just happened automatically. Now, all of a sudden, you know, you start to kind of stack, right? The areas of value creation. And if you can do all of that simultaneously with 90% or better cost savings, then you really have people's attention, right? And I think that's a lot of what we've been trying to do here is, by integrating what today are kind of a lot of disconnected processes that you know maybe we accept being um, inefficient because they're done in sort of a micro setting, stacking those together and then you know in a really major way compressing the cost. Um, it, it's it's not really a difficult sales process, right? So we've seen a lot of attention and a lot of new users um, really just by providing immense value, right? Instead of like uh, you know some schnazzy marketing campaign. We all know how expensive and sometimes they, those snazzy marketing campaigns don't work so well. Uh, and I want to get to that. You're, you're getting ahead of my questions here. Uh, so the, um, but I want to go back to, uh, so why bundle custody with technology? So there's so many firms that are just tech out there. There's so many custodians that are giving away their tech. Why did you come up with the idea to well, build great tech, which is obviously a great idea, but also bundle custody with it? Yeah, so I, th I think like this is one of these things where um, if I go back and, you know, sort of time um, and give some props where I think some people were very innovative, maybe a little bit ahead of their time. And, but I remember my first RIA, I worked with TD Waterhouse as my custodian, um, you know, pre-TD Ameritrade. And largely because they're the only ones that would take me, right? I didn't have a lot of asset center management. They were the only custodian that would even consider a sub $10 million advisor back then. And... Um, and so I, this was my first exposure to like the conversation when, when they bring you on and, and then they kind of introduce you to, I think they called it their affinity center or something like that, where they had this kind of section of the website with all of these other companies that you could kind of, you know, use to do different things. And, and I remember our sales rep telling me like, well, one of the things you'll need to find is a portfolio management system or portfolio accounting system, right? To do things like fee billing. And I remember being like, why wouldn't you guys just build, build, build fee billing right into your platform? Like, it's so silly that I have to go buy some other software for this. And they kind of like, you know, smiled and nodded and, and, and didn't really think much about my, my question. And then it was like, you know, you might want to find some of them also have, you know, performance reporting where you can aggregate, you know, a client that has five households into one really nice performance report and you can put your brand on it. And I thought again, why don't you guys just do this, right? Like that seems so silly that I would have to go find another company to do this. And you can imagine this conversation kept going, right? It kept going on and on. Um, I've, I ran into um, Folio Institutional maybe a couple years later, and they, you know, I think if people weren't familiar with them back then, they had digital account opening and digital ACATs and fee billing was integrated. They had model-based portfolios that traded fractional shares. Now, I will say it was quite expensive because they were charging asset-based pricing. This was way before commission-free trading. 
So if you're paying like 20 to 25 basis points for sort of this bundle, um, it, it definitely wasn't cheap, but all of the tech was there. Um, and it was a different structure than a typical custodian, but it was there. You could do a lot of things. And I remember then going back to my TD Ameritrade folks and going, man, it'd be so cool if you guys just bought them, you know, and, uh, and that way I could kind of have like the best of both worlds. I wouldn't have to maybe pay like this, you know, trust company oriented basis point pricing could get a great brand, right? All this tech integrated. And uh, obviously, you know, whatever, 15 years later, Goldman buys them. And so let's see what Goldman does with them. But, you know, what happens is, again, um, all these things, if we really peel back the layers of the onion, there's a reason why they're not tightly integrated with most companies today. And a lot of it has to do with things that most advisors don't want to talk about, which are going to be things like soft dollars and the way that we, you know, historically sort of um, were able to you know, at the custodial level, pay for all this software without having to develop it, but only for like your top really, really big customers. Um, so if you're running a multi-billion dollar firm, you probably got enough soft dollars directly paid to like your portfolio management system that it sort of felt like it was free, right? Like it, it felt like it was all kind of in one. Yeah, they were disconnected systems, but you weren't paying out of the box for it. Flip side of that, if you're that small advisor and you're paying $50 per year per account or $70 per year per account or have a $10,000 or $20,000 minimum for the software, it's pretty painful, right? So um, so what's weird is, is um, innovation generally happens from startups. Um, not always, but generally happens from startups. This also is the case with advisors, meaning like the actual RAs themselves. So I look at things and think, well, if we want to create innovation from the RIA channel, that means we have to build systems that a brand new startup advisor could jump into and have a really good chance at being successful at. We shouldn't build everything just to take care of the huge multi-billion dollar firms, but that's what was happening, right? And it had been happening for a very, very long time. So when you go out, why bundle the customer the tech? I think, again, one is it's just overdue. I mean, I think every advisor's had that same conversation I had 15 plus years ago, where I was like, why wouldn't this just, why wouldn't you just have fee billing? Like you have all the accounts, you have the assets. Why couldn't I just like toggle a couple of buttons, you know, and have the percentage of AUM fee or whatever my fee billing mechanism was. And again, and again, on and on with these other elements of the platform. So everybody's had that like conversation. We all wish it was just integrated for the most part. Um, and so it's overdue. And then the second part is I think only when you integrate, can you compress the cost structure and you can also engineer sort of the actual, um, you know, sort of custody experience of things like, um, you know, fractional share trading, I think is really critical. I'm so glad that Folio did it way back in the day. I certainly hope everyone eventually gets there, but these are things that will allow an advisor to give the same client with, you know, a hundred dollars, a portfolio that normally they would have to have, you know, half a million for, you know, because of the sort of fractional ability to deploy at scale your same model portfolios across a lot of client accounts. So these are things that are really, you know, important to me, maybe not to everybody, but I do feel like um, if we want to have a lot of innovation in this space, I think it's important for consumers that they get access to more great advisors. We had to put these things together. I think keeping them separate um, creates way too much complexity and way too much cost. And that stifles innovation. Lots of things stifle innovation. And that leads me to my next question, which is a com combined question. So we're going to talk about um, how the Schwab TD merger creates opportunities. And by definition, when the firms get larger, they have a harder time innovating because they're just too big and they have too much legacy business. And also your decision to switch the, your, your custodian partner to Apex. So can you talk about those two things sort of in, in a group there? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of work in back in, uh, backwards here. So um, on, on the clearing side, uh, whenever you start a company like Altruist, I think um, there's there's essentially like three layers of like the clearing and custody relationship. So for those, again, who don't know, most people just think, well, I work with Fidelity and you know, it's like, but they don't realize if they unpacked Fidelity, there'd be kind of three components, right? So you have a, a broker dealer component, you have a clearing firm component, and then you have a custody component, right? So these three kind of pieces. And if you're a startup, you'd be, I think, a bit crazy to say, I'm going to build all three of these things all out of the box, all at once. That would be like, you know, probably a $50 million, you know, five-year build. Um, so just way too high risk, you know, before ever finding out if you have product market fit, which is why you don't see people doing it, right? There's only been a couple of firms that have built full self-clearing in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, uh, Robinhood and Vanguard. So, um, so that um, means you have to have a great clearing partner. And there's a lot of good clearing and custody partners out there. You can actually, um, someone could have launched like us with Pershing. Like we could have launched with um, RBC. We could have launched with Apex. We could have launched with DriveWealth, right? We initially built our platform with DriveWealth as our clearing partner. And I will say that Drive has a really elegant API architecture um, we had a great experience working with them. I would say it's no fault of their own that we had to move on. Um, I think that they have uh, a really bright future. But one of the things that they ran into, and this is like uh, the politics of finance, um, is they were only at the clearing layer, right? So as I said, there's a broker dealer, clearing partner, custody partner. They were actually using a vendor for custody. That vendor got bought by a company called Peak Six. Peak Six is the parent company of Apex Clearing. You can probably imagine that they didn't really want to be helping one of their competitors with the back end custody. And so um, Drive had to go find a new custody partner. And that just delayed their ability to ship certain features that we needed right away. Like we, you know, for example, like a trust account was going to be six months later on the roadmap because they had to go do a whole new integration with a custody partner. Um, I have no doubt they'll figure it out and they'll be a force to be reckoned with down the road, um, but they just aren't there today, right? Um, at least in the advisor channel space, there's too much complexity in terms of account types and security types you need to support day one to help advisors. And, and they were going to be um, you know, a ways down the road before they could. Apex on the other hand, you know, has been around for a while, longer than people realize going back to their Penson days, they have a lot of um, you know, sort of infrastructure that is easy to plug into. It's not as easy as people think. It's not turnkey. You still need to have a pretty good size engineering team and really know what you're doing and have a decent budget. Um, but um, those were all things that we checked the boxes on. Um, I, I really appreciate how good of a partner they've been because we came to them and did a lightning fast, like six month integration, probably one of the fastest B2B integrations they've ever done, if not the fastest. Um, and they've been a great partner since we launched. So um, that was kind of the backstory, right? The inside baseball, how do we end up with Apex? I've always liked them. I've done an integration with them before in a past company. Um, we thought we'd try the new kids on the block when, in Drive Wealth. And again, they, they, they were great, um, but just didn't quite have the sophistication to serve advisors. Now, the interesting reason when I took that backwards is this just underscores, you know, right? Like the politics sometimes, you know, of you know, financial services. Um, I don't know what will happen with Schwab and TD Ameritrade. I'm, I'm sure eventually um, it'll be a, you know, something that we look back on and, and, and we won't really think like uh, that it was a difficult integration. I think, you know, five years from now, we'll look back and go, oh, yeah, it's, we just know Schwab and we kind of remember the old TD days, but it won't be like this, it's front and center as it is today. Um, that being said, like, you know, they've got a, um, they've got a tough, you know, next year, um, and plus probably a year and a half, two years, maybe even just integrating those two businesses, much less the actual 
clearing and custody platforms. Um, platform integrations are hard. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, I, like my last uh, RIA um, merged with another large RIA, you know, just two good, you know, two multi-billion dollar RAs trying to put all their systems and pieces together. And I'm sure you know this from a, a lot of consulting projects, they're hard. Like they take, you know, you have to have a plan. Um, you're, you're talking 12 plus months, even for, again, just putting two meaningful RIAs together to putting two huge custodians with retail businesses and institutional businesses and asset management businesses and banking charters. It's a big, big, big project. Um, so, so I think that, you know, for a while, they're going to be heavily focused on that as they should, that's got to be their core. Um, and advisors, you know, are already feeling a little bit of that um, because you just, you know, and, and, and this isn't like, you know, fairness with anybody. I mean, Schwab and, and TD are doing the right things by, you know, really working their integration plan. And advisors, rightfully so, if they're frustrated with maybe it's bad service or difficulty in a phone queue or whatever it might be, um, can totally understand why they might be frustrated. But I will say, like, you know, for us, that was never, um, like, I started this company before that happened, you know, like, I didn't, this wasn't like an in response to Schwab trade, you know, it's just sort of like, this is a thing that occurred in the past two and a half years. Um, and I think uh, it, it certainly gets advisors thinking if nothing else, right? I don't know that a lot of people are necessarily going to change. I mean, some will, some won't. Um, I think it'll, there'll be certainly a lot of frustration expressed, you know, in social media and, you know, conversations advisors have with each other and things like that. Um, but, but I don't think, you know, that um, it's going to result in like this mass exodus of advisors, to be frank. I think most people will stay put. Um, it'll be a difficult maybe year or so, but certainly there's people exploring, right? And we're a benefactor to that as are other sort of custody, custody alternatives. Um, and interestingly, the kind of story it's not told as much is um, this has also affected Fidelity. You know, Fidelity, I think, has had to think about their business because it was one thing to compete with Schwab and TD separately and to be the clear, you know, a, a, a clear number two, like, you know, kind of like in the Schwab Fidelity TD kind of big three. Um, now they're obviously cemented at number two for a while, um, but they have a much bigger kind of, you know, player sitting next to them. Um, and one that is, is very diversified like they are, whereas TD, you know, had a much, a much more kind of, um, you know, uh, I'd say like independent business model, whereas, you know, Fidelity's and Schwab's look a lot alike, um, whereas TD was always kind of the outlier in that crew. Um, so it's made Fidelity, I think, rethink how they do business, um, which has actually created opportunity even there, you know, in terms of like their service model and their pricing models and the way that they're actually taking care of advisors. And on top of all of that, the 0% interest rate world has affected all three of them quite a bit, actually, more than people realize. Um, this is then making it much more difficult for them to continue doing things like soft dollars, which I mentioned earlier. So we're seeing soft dollars get yanked in a lot of cases or significantly modified, uh, most cases being fully taken away. So now RIAs are sitting there going, boy, like I'm going to have to pay for a lot of these things out of pocket. Um, and they're paying a lot more attention to their technology decisions, right, than they were before. So it's interesting, like how like the, um, you know, the, the sort of butterfly effect, if you will, of, of not just that merger, but all these other things happening combined COVID, you know, a, a global pandemic in the mix. Um, and it's definitely um, created a really unique time for anybody offering better solutions to advisors. In other words, it's, it's an, an extraordinary opportunity, great time to be in this business, um, I believe. 
Hey, I want to take a break from this episode to talk about one of my favorite charities, the Invest in Others Charitable Foundation. Invest in Others is a nonprofit that supports and empowers financial advisors who give back to their communities with overwhelming generosity. Now in its 15th year, Invest in Others has raised and distributed millions of dollars to worthy charities that are run by or assisted by financial advisors both in the U.S. and abroad. The Invest in Others Foundation is kicking off 2021 with a restock of the shelves campaign. This past year, demand for food from nonprofits was at an all-time high. Last year, more than 50 million people experienced food insecurity. Now that the holiday season has ended, supplies at many food banks and shelters have dropped, but demand has not. To help restock the shelves, Invest in Others will award grants of up to $20,000 to nonprofits who are fighting hunger in their communities. If you work in the financial services industry and also volunteer for a 501c3 nonprofit that's in need of food items, apply for a grant from the Invest in Others Foundation on its behalf. They wanna help you restock the shelves in your community this January. Applications will be accepted now through Friday, February 5th at investinothers.org forward slash grants. So if you want to put your uh, 501c3 nonprofit's name in for a grant of up to $20,000, please go to investinothers.org forward slash grants. And I wanted to touch on some of your success you've had even before the Schwab uh, TD merger, as you know, as you said, that your firm has been growing phenomenally. I know last year we spoke, you were, you were planning on having over 600 RIAs on your platform by the end of the third quarter. How's that going? And how do you explain your success? What's the secret? It's got to be more than just the name, having a great name. And you don't really do a lot of marketing. So so what is the secret to having all these RIAs, you know, dropping whatever they've, they've got to switch over to you guys? Yeah. So, so we're right now we're adding around 110 to 120 new RA firms per month. So it's still growing very rapidly. Um, and we're really excited about that. I, I think we'll, at some point in 2021, we'll reveal, you know, kind of our, our total count, but it's going to probably surprise a lot of people. Um, I just won't surprise you, you and I know, but there'll be some people like, Whoa, I would have never guessed that there was this much, you know, sort of, um, you know, interest, but, um, and you're right. We, we've we've spent very little on marketing. Like our, our marketing budget since the day our company was founded is probably like less than a lot of fintech companies are spending in a week. Um, you know, it's it's a very very efficient sort of capital efficient business for us. Um, and a lot of that is, um, you know, uh, probably I think the most compelling thing you can have when you go to market in any industry, which is that you simply are providing immense value to your users. Right. So. Um, the combination of, you know, sort of a message that, um, you know, you have people who are frustrated with their current solutions. So it's not like we had to go manufacture like demand. People are not super happy with what they have today. Um, and then you come in and you offer a solution that they're looking for, and you're doing it at 90% lower pricing than everyone else. Um, like that creates a gravitational pull towards your platform. And so I always tell people like the analogy I would give is, um, it's kind of borrowing from Ray Kroc. I think at one of his uh, early franchise, um, you know, uh, get-togethers in in Chicago, he was asking franchise owners, you know, hey, what do you think the most important thing is, you know, if, for a successful McDonald's franchise? And some people would say, wow, huge marketing budget, other uh, best location in town. And he goes, hungry customers, right? That's the best thing you could ask for, right? If you could have one super hungry customers, well. 
that's what we have, right? Like we have this group of advisors that again, have been just like me 15 years ago. Why aren't these things connected? Why is everything so expensive? And then the other thing is that um, all of the FinTech innovation that's really been happening has been outside of the advisor channel. Um, so we think about like Robinhood getting a whatever $60 billion valuation or something absurd like that. Um, you know, it, that's reported secondary market valuation that is, but raising billions of dollars, um, even the robo advisors, which I think are less, uh, people worry less about them, but look, they've still attracted hundreds of millions of investment and have attracted millions of end users. Um, and even major companies like Schwab and Vanguard have invested very heavily in their consumer facing automated advice businesses um, or augmented to automated advice businesses. Meanwhile, the independent financial advisors sitting out there and no offense to like my, my FinTech you know, uh, colleagues uh, in this space, but we've not exactly been giving them the best tools, right? Like we've been giving people kind of like, you know, bit solutions to small individual pain points. Um, I, uh, I consider Michael Kitts his friend, so I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but everyone looks at his FinTech solutions map that he puts out and it's really complicated. It's kind of embarrassing actually, right? Like we shouldn't have to have 700 solutions. Like think about when you, um, if you want to start an online store today, and so let's say that you're a you know, you've, you've got a small retail shop pre-COVID and you're like, I got to go online and, and start selling through the internet. Um, there's not 700 solutions, right? That you have to put together. You could just go sign on with Shopify and be in market within days, right? Super easy, no code. You need no third-party software people like to develop, you know, your add-ons and stuff like that. You could literally build it yourself. Or let's say you're a craft maker, right? And you just want to, you don't even want to have your own store. You just want to sell. You just go to Etsy, right? You sell through Etsy. Um, let's say you have a vacation property or just your own home. And you're like, look, I want to make some extra cash, run out the you know, studio above the garage. You go on Airbnb, snap a few photos, boom, you're in business. But if you want to start an advisory business, it's like, you know, um, I don't know, like figuring like a Rubik's cube or something. It's way too complicated. Like we haven't created this easy solution for advisors to go launch really successful businesses. It's instead, you have to go find this custodian and this you know, portfolio accounting system, this billing system, this trading system, this CRM, this financial planning. Um, it's really complex. And, and what's funny is none of those things, right? Like these decisions um, are actually the advisor's job, right? The advisor's job is advising, you know, or the planner's job is planning. Um, and so there's a lot of complexity there. I mean, and thankfully for people like you, you're at least making it easier for a lot of these, like especially bigger organizations to make smart choices. But that solo advisor that probably would have a hard time, you know, being able to get someone like you or, or us and the other consultants out there to help them bespoke their platform. I mean, it is a nightmare, right? And if you're not already a decent sized firm that can go get a great consultant to help you put the pieces together, that one or two person shop is in a, in a tough spot. So that's how we've grown so much, right? We've created essentially the Shopify, you know, for financial advisors. You can come here, the core of everything you need is in one spot. You don't have any minimums. There's no, you know, sort of requirements to pull, you know, sign a contract to move $50 million or something absurd. And the irony is that that message is still really attractive to even billion dollar firms. Um, so we have a bunch of large users that are really excited about Altruist. Um, uh, even though a lot of our core value prop is just the ease of doing business. Um, and we see that again, using like Shopify as my example, 
they're powering multiple huge billion dollar a year, you know, um, e-commerce stores. Um, and they're also supporting, you know, hundreds of thousands of stores that are probably doing less than 10 grand. Um, and they're using the same platform, essentially the same core architecture to do it. Um, advice needs that, right? Financial advisors need that too. Yeah, that's well said. And, you know, I've, I've, I do um, some speaking engagements. And one thing I was talking about is how there's really not a lot of innovation in our channel, right? It's, it's sort of, we're always following on or slow followers, not even fast followers. And as you said, most of the innovation is happening outside. Although I would disagree in that. Why do we have 700 solutions? Sometimes, you know, we don't have enough solutions in some areas that, that you need that, you need that churn of companies coming in with new ideas and starting and failing to generate the innovation. You're not going to have innovation without lots of people starting new ideas, but yeah, I think true. they don't see our channel or our, our segment or niche of the industry as all that innovative or a place where there are innovations that they could start a company. They're always going to payments or other air, other areas that, that seem more lucrative to them. And it also may be that just firms aren't paying enough. Like if you look at firms that are sold some tech firms, like that have sold recently, they're not getting huge multiples. Some of these firms, uh, unless they have t- tremendous market share. So I think yeah. they're, you know, per, you know, we really could use more, uh, more startups, not less. But and, and Michael won't bo- won't mind you uh, you knocking the map for having too many logos. It's not his fault. He's just documenting. He's just reporting. And I actually helped him. He's just reporting. I just I've started to help him with that map. We uh, helped him with the, the the March version of it, uh, mainly around the portfolio management rebalancing area where we're experts cool. and because they're organizing it a little, a little differently. But because there are so many and it's hard to keep up as to who's doing what and who offers what solutions. So yeah, it's confusing. Um, but in, in a way that is a little bit different than, than other areas. Yeah, I think I would just piggyback on something you said there. I think it's important. Um, if someone is a aspiring founder of a new idea, one of the biggest challenges we have in this space is raising outside capital, you know, to be able to go and build great, you know, new innovative technologies for advisors. And a lot of that's because of that total addressable market kind of, you mentioned like Pete, like the, the outside outsiders of our industry, they don't, they don't look at this and say, Oh, this is a big industry. Right? I mean, there's a reason why everybody looked at like the again, direct consumer, Robinhood, M1 finance, you know, um, public, et cetera. And they're going, oh, these are huge, right? Markets, hundreds of millions of people. And then you look at advisors and we go, well, there's 40,000, you know, RIAs that is, you know, right? Um, and and it's, so it's, it's one of these spaces where it's difficult, you know, to go in, you know, I, I saw all over this past weekend that um, uh, Stripe just raised another 600 million at a 90 plus billion dollar valuation. Nobody's giving a advice tech company $600 million at a, I mean, you know, not anytime soon anyway, right? I mean, our biggest players in this space are actually the custodians. And I, I'm not sure what Schwab's valuation is these days, but I think Stripe might be bigger than them now um, on paper, you know? So um, this is something that is always going to be a bit of a challenge, you know, for us is that like, it, it's just, you know, it's not as sexy evidently um, in the sort of total addressable market. Um, people look at the upside and, a lot of great venture investors, they, you know, they look at somebody selling for 50 million or even 500 million as being kind of like uh, yawn inducing, really not that exciting. So they want to look at like, well, what, what could be a $10 billion idea or a $5 billion idea? Like in its best case, scenario, like what is the ceiling, you know? And a lot of the stuff that people build in our space, like the ceiling just frankly isn't there. And that's okay. Like we still need a lot of that innovation. I think one of the coolest examples that hopefully other fintech entrepreneurs can look to is risk allies. I feel like 
you know, when, when Risk Labs was started um, compared to where it is today, I mean, um, it proves that what maybe at first wasn't perceived as this really big idea. Risk Labs is a really big company now. That's probably very valuable. And, you know, Aaron and his team have done a great job there. Um, but, but that is what's possible. I think if people build something new and innovative and execute like crazy, um, and, uh, and hopefully we see a lot more of that. Hopefully. But speaking of execution, I want to talk about some of your staffing choices and your methodology behind that. Most people that I talk to are, are desperate to find industry players, industry, you know, smart people to bring into their firm. Yeah. You're doing the opposite. You're hiring mostly people from outside the industry. So why did you do that? And how do you think that that helps drive your success? Yeah, well, thanks for noticing. I think the, um, uh, so I will say, I got to give a quick shout out to my friend, Pete Dorsey, who just joined. So we were able to, um, we have added some really great people from inside the industry. Um, our CCO, Mazi Bahadori is another kind of industry person, uh, more FinTech than traditional financial services, but did spend some years at PIMCO. So we have some folks that definitely are from industry, but you're right. The majority of our staff, I mean, our team, which, you know, we just, went over hundred people on the team. I think we're close to 110 now. Um, probably 80 to 90 have never spent any time in financial services. Um, now the areas that we hire specifically in financial services, like the folks working on like our trading tools and rebalancing our compliance programs, um, you know, broker dealer operations, those folks, we definitely highly value industry experience as we should. But when we think about like our brand, our user experience, um, our way we think about engineering and architecture, that's largely coming outside the industry from places like, um, we just brought in a great marketing leader from um, Spotify, um, which people will hear about um, you know, uh, by the time this is played. Um, that's unusual you know, for like a global leader of a brand like Spotify to come work in fintech, you know, financial services fintech, specifically a uh, financial advisor fintech, you know, like that's um, um, unusual. But this is part of what makes our brand unique. Um, it's part of what makes our design unique. And, and a lot of it is that I think the best products in the world, I wish I could say this wasn't the case, but I think the best products in the world are not yet in advisor tech, right? Um, if we look at like, you know, Salesforce, or if we look at, um, uh, you know, um, Apple, if we look at consumer brands, I'd rattle off a few like um, Airbnb. I mean, some of these like really transformational brands, you know, that have built incredible technology or Stripe, we just mentioned. I mean, again, these are, these are places where I feel like if you can get people from those backgrounds, they're going to think about things without sort of like the, um, the pre-existing, hey, this is how we did it at ABC. This is how we did it at XYZ. Now, I think it's good to have some of that for point of reference, but I really like to bring in like incredibly talented product people that just think about the problems and finding innovative solutions versus let's just go find people who did it one way at, you know, name the, again, there's a lot of great companies in our space, but then all you'd end up having is like, it's like mixing black paint, white paint, and gray paint, right? You just get gray. Um, we want to bring in like, you know, people that are totally thinking differently than anyone's ever thought in this space, like tackling problems with no sort of, um, you know, pre-existing ideas of how the best way to do it um, really is. Um, and have built really big, meaningful technology products that scale to massive scale, like way bigger than our industry's ever scaled to. Um, the largest tech companies in our space are still pretty small, you know, compared to the largest software companies. So we really want to think like what's possible, you know, and, um, and then go find the best people there. And I think fortunately, um, 
you know, the, the brand part is really important. Like bringing in like exceptional brand and design thinkers like early has really helped us attract those people that are willing to leave, you know, um, you know, you name it, Facebook or, um, you know, again, uh, Spotify or Salesforce, et cetera. I mean, we've had a lot of really great people um, that have left fantastic prior companies. Um, but a lot of it's because they believe in what we're doing and the upside here. Um, so this all like, you know, plays into our ethos as well. I think that, um, a lot of people outside of our industry um, as a consumer are frustrated with the consumer experience, trying to find and work with an advisor. So a lot of these people that are coming and joining us. It's funny when we interview, they'll be like, yeah, I have an advisor and this is what the thing, this is what the experience was like. And it was terrible. And you may not necessarily the advisor was terrible, but just like the, oh yeah, I never know what, how much money I have. And I don't have a mobile app and I don't have, you know, so, so it's cool to be able to um, see that um, great, you know, builders of companies and products um, externally, um, they do have an interest in what we all are doing. Like they want to help financial advisors and they want to, um, you know, think of like these new innovative ways to bring their uh, experiences into this space. Um, and it definitely shows. I mean, obviously when people use our product, it doesn't take them uh, much more than a couple of seconds to realize this wasn't built by people from our industry. You know, it was built by people, you know, that have a, you know, a, in most many cases, like a lot more consumer kind of feeling simplicity in the UI and the UX. Hey, wait a minute. This wasn't built by people in our industry. What is, what gives like, they will shocked. What is this? this <laughs> the, um, so uh, we're running out of time. I want to get a couple more questions in. So what can be a $10 billion idea in our industry? Do you see Altruist on a path similar to Robinhood, another $10 billion a year company? Um, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that from day one, I think, again, I'm, I'm certainly not a statement of arrogance, but you know, my last company, I think if I'd have kept running with it for a few more years, I think I could have made it a billion dollar company, like no doubt in my mind, that's where it was going. But I've, it, and it wasn't about the valuation, by the way, but it was just sort of like the impact it was going to create, I realized would be somewhat limited. I mean, that's why the valuation would have probably capped out like as a billion dollar company. Um, you know, with this company, I wanted to do something really transformational that I could be really proud of. In order to do that, you have to be able to make a massive impact and, and really serve a lot of people. Um, in our industry, I feel like the best way and the most innovative way to do that was starting at the custody layer. You know, I look at like in the industry as multi-layers, right? You've got the custody layer, which if you're an RIA, it's a, for most RIAs, 99%, that's the core layer everything else is built on top of. And Let's find those things, the, the most expensive, cumbersome, high friction areas that are related to that sort of the custody side of the RA space. Let's integrate those really seamlessly. When you think about the size of that addressable market, it's trillions of dollars, right? So we're talking, you know, um, I think it's moving in on five or $6 trillion of RA custody assets. Just on the wealth manager side alone, it's like three and a half trillion dollars of assets. Um, people have to remember that Robinhood's only maybe a 60 to $70 billion custodian. Um, they've gamified bad behavior. So they're generating revenue on client assets, probably close to 2%, um, which is why they get a billion a year in revenue. Um, but it should, if, you're doing, if you're doing good work and serving your customers, your, your ROCA, as the industry, I guess, would call it, is probably going to be more like 30 basis points. So the question then becomes, can we be seven times bigger than Robinhood? And the answer is absolutely. Seven times bigger than Robinhood is 400 billion or so in RA custody assets. I think we get there within five years. So is this that big of an idea? Absolutely. And I think it shows in the interest, you know, from outside investors, outside of our industry. And it's really cool because hopefully this is bringing some new attention into our space. 
um, that we hadn't been getting. And when people see that there's great ideas where you can build really meaningful companies that are transformational, that really do change kind of the way people think about how financial advice and individuals are connected to advisors, um, that you don't have to play small. Like there is a lot of um, opportunity to do things really uh, well here. You got to think big. Don't, no, no, we don't need any small thinkers Absolutely. around here. So uh, last question, do you, anything you can share on the product roadmap that's going to be coming this year that would be exciting for uh, either your current uh, clients or prospective clients? Sure. Yeah. So um, I think there's, there's, there's quite a few things. I mean, pro- probably like the less sexy thing that'll be coming soon will be um, a really robust teams product that'll allow like larger advisors um, to really seamlessly run so they could have 50 employees and still run their entire business here. I think that'll be really exciting. Um, in Q3, we'll be kicking off integrations. So this will be where I think um, you'll see all of your favorite products. We're going to find some really elegant ways to integrate those. And we're trying to think through integrations differently than others have in the past. So it's not like this bizarre, weird kind of like partially working single sign-on or something like that, um, but really deep integrations. Then in terms of like, you know, kind of like the more fun, sexy stuff, um, I think what you'll find is um, a lot of banking-based products and crypto will happen, I think, this year. Um, and so um, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, it's hard to say because I never know how far our competitors are along, but I, I like to think that we'll be um, the first RA custodian to seamlessly offer digital assets into our experience. Pretty high conviction that'll, that'll come true, unless someone's a lot far ahead than I think they are. Uh, but excited about that. Um, and then I think the banking part is really going to be important because there's lots of like, again, sort of like, almost like banking as a service that people can bolt on to other technologies. And there's people kind of trying to play around in that space, but there's really no better uh, solution than having it integrated directly into your custodial interface um, to where your clients, if they're using your mobile app, like they can legitimately manage their uh, bill pay and their banking relationship directly in the same application that you're providing for all of their wealth management needs. Um, and if you can do it with far better rates and far better user experience than what they could get from their local banks, it will create a lot of opportunity there as well. So um, in any event, I think there'll be some other stuff too. We'll keep kind of private, but I think you'll see some, a lot of big news this year. Um, I have some stuff I wish I could talk more publicly about right now, but we just can't quite yet. But I think the, the second quarter of this year, um, anyone who doesn't know Altruist will definitely know who we are. And I think our users um, that have been patient and giving us great feedback to shape the product are going to be really excited to see all those ideas and feedback um, sort of materialize into um, releases that um, will help them better serve their clients. All right. So we want to hear exciting stuff coming to Altruist in 2021. It's going to be a big year. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me on and letting us uh, share this story, Craig. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you uh, making some time. You're the busy guy building a $10 billion business. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for coming on and and sharing with us. I'm looking forward to talking to you again soon. Sounds great. Thanks. Hey, it's Craig again. And I'm going to wrap up this uh, interview and with my, a couple of my takeaways. Uh, I really like some of the things that Jason uh, talked about. I was, I mean, I'd like to dive into the stuff that I'm interested in. And I hope that you're interested in it as well. So I like to hear his decision, why they switched to apex going into the, some of the details some of the nitty gritty technical details. And which I found interesting as to why, uh, why these things happen, the breakdown of custody, how the different layers work. I find that kind of stuff interesting. Uh, and the, the opportunity CCs and the Schwab TDA merger. You know, I, I see that 
the the larger the firm, obviously the less innovative uh, they usually are. Not all firms are this way, but you know, Schwab is a bunch of pretty smart people there. So they're going to continue to innovate. It's just more difficult to do it quicker than smaller firms can. So with any merger uh, that creates a very, very large uh, a market share in one company, it creates opportunities for smaller firms who are nimbler uh, to create more innovative solutions and, 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 uh, and products. So that's something Schwab, uh, the new Schwab entity needs to look out for and, and a benefit for altruist. And uh, the, what he talked about, how there's not a lot of innovation in our industry, and I agree. So we're all looking for more solutions and more products. And in my, in my opinion, we need more ideas to come into wealth management technology, not less. Uh, because the, that's only where we're going to find that one lottery ticket that becomes uh, the billion dollar, $10 billion firm, as Jason is looking to do with Altruist. So that's a wrap for this episode. Please go to our website, EzraGroupLLC.com, and sign up for our newsletter. You will not be disappointed, and you'll get one email a month, maybe a little bit more, with news and updates and information about the industry. And I hope you'll like it. And I will talk to everyone again next time.